Hello, and welcome to ABS in Mind, the podcast from the staff here at DebtWire ABS. We'll take you behind the curtains of the asset-backed securities markets and the loans that they help finance. I'm Al Yoon, and I'll be hosting today. Hello, and thanks for tuning into the ABS in Mind podcast. I'm Al Yoon, a senior reporter and assistant editor for DebtWire ABS, and I'll be your host today. Today, we're exploring some risks to the real estate and mortgage markets that I think aren't always being factored into investment decisions, and those are climate-related risks. Uh, That's not to say that climate risk, or more narrowly, natural disaster risk, isn't on the minds of investors, but we wonder, what are they actually doing about it? So let's tackle the issue. To do that, we have as our guest David Burt, the founder and CEO of Delta Terra Capital, an investment research and consulting firm focused on identifying and measuring climate risks. Welcome, Dave. Thanks for having me, Al. Sure thing. First, Dave, uh, give us a little background about yourself and why you founded Delta Terror. What was the motivation behind that? Sure. Well, um, I, my background is more as an institutional investor. I've been helping clients navigate risky markets as an investor and quantitative analyst focused on both direct real estate and uh, mortgage-backed securities uh, for the last 20 years or so. Uh, Most recently as a fixed income PM and partner at Wellington Management Company. I decided to focus full-time on climate risk in recent years after my team's early research on the topic revealed large mispriced risk issues in real estate markets. Um, I've been spent my entire career studying the impact of different thematic fundamental drivers, real estate investment risks, and this one is a real doozy. <laughs> so uh, we were working on this theme uh, as a small quantitative investment team at Wellington Management, uh, where we were running 140 or so Uh, different accounts focused on different objectives for clients, but all resolving around uh, finding mispriced assets and positioning uh, folks in such a way uh, to accomplish their their goals as investors. Really, the early modeling work on this theme uh, suggested that it was big enough to warrant a full-time approach. So at the end of 2018, I left my career as a fixed income portfolio management and started Delta Terra. And our goal is to assist institutional investors and other agents within the real estate capital markets um, in the measurement and management of climate-related risks in their day-to-day workflows. Okay. Um, And Dave, you mentioned for Wellington, helping them find mispriced uh, assets, for instance. Uh, Now, you've been out there discussing, uh, including in a letter recently to the Federal Housing Finance Agency uh, a few months ago, what seems to be an alarming mispricing of climate-related risks in real estate and mortgages today. Just wondering if you could start out by giving us a scope of the problem and maybe even a couple of examples if you can. Sure. Well, the most immediate climate risk issue that we're focused on uh, is a current large disconnect between premium dollars being collected and expected hazard losses uh, from climate-related weather events. So actually a reset in current cost expectations could ultimately be 
just as impactful as a reset and how we expect these costs to change into the future. That's something that people don't always appreciate. We recently performed a thorough bottom-up analysis of continental U.S. single-family property markets. Um, that was with a lot of help from our climate services partner, Rescue. And we found an annual gap of about $28 billion a year for the two most underinsured or underpriced risks, uh, which are flood and wildfire. Because these additional costs will need to be absorbed by property owners each year, not just one year, and because the costs are expected to increase over time, the impact on property value of repricing the insurance gap uh, gets really magnified. So in our base repricing scenario for the continental U.S. single-family market, this translates to about $1.9 trillion in value losses, uh, which equates to about 3.5% of the total market value. That's of the U.S. continental real estate market, uh, single-family real estate market. It does need to be acknowledged probably that, that's, uh, that even in our bear case, which involves a 5.6% value correction, that's still half or less the value correction that we experienced at the national level following the, the Great Financial Crisis, or GFC. Uh, the problem for mortgage investors in this scenario is that this correction will be concentrated in specific exposed geographies. And a small number of big moves is actually worse for lenders than a large number of small moves, which might have characterized a lot of the average real estate market performance following the GFC. So in our recent response to the FHFA RFI that you mentioned on natural disaster risk at the agencies, we estimated a loss rate of 175 basis points in the bear scenario on the overall $7 trillion agency mortgage market. So that's about the extent. Again, that's about half the rate of losses experienced uh, following the GFC on the agency books. But the agency books are actually much bigger now. So in terms of a taxpayer liability, it's still a very meaningful impact. So you, you've identified the risks. I'm just wondering if you could specify a little bit more about how you see a correction playing out or how is it playing out if it's already happening? Do you know what I mean? Yeah, you know, it's really just starting. And, and, and like I described, the risks that we're currently focused on is less, uh, less of uh, the increases into the future as, as, as relevant as that is to this conversation and more about just the mispricing of risk currently uh, at this time. So that's, that's, of course, that's an existing mispricing, and there shouldn't be much of a nod to future uncertainty when we think about that. And when we did our analysis analyzing these hazard risks, we actually broke out flood mispricing into three categories. In going, what's going to catalyze a correction here uh, we looked at um, the risks that are out there as broken into different categories of hazards. So we looked at wildfire, and that's the second biggest risk out there. Uh, we also looked at flood broken out into three separate categories. So one is homes within SFHAs, or Special Flood Hazard Areas. Uh, those are regions that have already been identified by FEMA as having uh, what's called one in a hundred year flood risk. So that's actually the largest concern in terms of 
existing mispricing out there because of the substantial amount of risk that's contained within these regions and very low take-up rates and even lower pricing when there is an insurance premium uh, relative to the actual risk on some of these properties. So that's within the SFHA. Now, there's a big project underway at FEMA right now called Risk Rating 2.0. And the goal of that project is to reprice the National Flood Insurance Program, the premiums that they charge in these special flood hazard areas. So just a, a reevaluation and a repricing of this very core insurance market could be the catalyst to bring expectations for future insurance premiums in line. So that's within a very large, that's about um, 30% of the properties at, at risk that we see from a repricing fall into that category. So the higher insurance costs would count as a repricing of the risk, right? Yeah, exactly. So the issue right now is when someone's looking at a property, they'll see, they'll get a quote for their NFIP insurance. Say they're in a special flood hazard area, so they have to get a NFIP policy if they want to take out a loan to buy the property. And say that the quote that they get is $200 a year. And that is what they think that they're going to have to pay. And so this is a nuance. This is why the mispricing exists is because these things are mispriced currently. And borrowers and property buyers in general think that those costs are likely to stay current, are likely to stay constant into the future. So if you get a quote for $200 a year for NFIP insurance, you're probably going to think that's what you have to pay every year in the future. And that's, that's an that's a assumption that we make in these models that is currently relevant and will probably begin to change in the near future as premiums begin to change as a result of risk rating 2.0. But if you go then... If you then go to sell that property, and this is after risk rating 2.0 has been rolled out, the next buyer might see that their premium is now $1,000 a year. So it's an extra $800 a year that they're going to have to pay to own this home. And they're going to have to pay that eight extra $800 next year, year after that, and into some indefinite future. Yeah, it seems that uh, home buyers, homeowners should be able to wrap their heads around that because, I mean, you know, think about taxes. I mean, we all sort of <laughs> expect our property taxes to keep rising, unfortunately, but they do. Right. And mm -hmm. so, um, you know, that uh, has to be factored into it when you buy a home. Maybe it maybe not all, all people do it, but, uh, you know, a lot of people do, I think. So, I mean, why not also understand that uh, your insurance costs because of uh, some natural disaster or climate risk wouldn't also rise? Yeah. And, uh, and we think it's 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 inevitable that this mispricing corrects because the damages are coming. And so really, there's, there's only so there's, there's a certain level of willingness by government and really as an ex expression of taxpayer fiduciary responsibilities, there's a, a limited willingness of government to just absorb these hazard costs, which are, are real and on the horizon based on uh, some very reliable science at this, mm -hmm. at this point. 
And, uh, and and what are your findings uh, regarding wildfire? Um, I just thought about that the other day because I was having a discussion with some friends in in Palm Springs, California, and they were telling us about uh, about how their insurance costs are rising exponentially almost. Yeah. And so the thing about wildfire is the risk has really ramped up over the last few years. And, you know, historically, whereas like the average insurance losses or insurance claims payments due to wildfires in California were about $2 billion a year, you know, Three, four, actually four of the last five years, wildfire loss payments were in excess of $5 billion. And we estimate that insurers are really only collecting $1.5 billion a year as a part of their insurance premium to cover those losses. So unlike flood risk, which is really just it's a, it's a highly uninsured and the insurance market is highly mispriced. You know, wildfire is reasonably insured because typically to buy a home, at least if you're going to get a mortgage, you need at least a regular homeowner's hazard policy. So flood insurance aside, just regular home insurance. And that traditionally does come with uh, wildfire hazard coverage. We estimate that the portion that insurers are collecting on high-risk properties that are high-risk due to wildfire again, is, is only about $1.5 billion a year. Now, now what's happening is because insurers have lost money, for instance, in California on their homeowner's books because of wildfire in three or four of the last five years, they are uh, attempting to pair that risk from their books. And what does that look like right now in practice? Well, two things. One, someone could be going to purchase a home and trying to get new insurance. The other issue where this could become a problem is someone with an existing policy coming up for renewal. Because remember, insurance contracts are typically just one year at a time. So every year, insurers have an opportunity to both reprice and re-underwrite. The pricing is very regulated at the state level. Uh, so there, it is not like they have an opportunity to just price, price along as things go. And that's another reason why this disconnect has grown over time is regulators only allow for a certain amount of risk-based mm-hmm. pricing. California is a mess right now because many insurers wanted to pair this risk but the state actually put a moratorium on insurers not renewing policies because of wildfire concerns. There was an initial moratorium that applied to about 800,000 homes. That was in 2019. In 2020, there was another moratorium put in place that covered about 2.2 million homes. Those were homes that had been affected in the massive wildfires in 2020. So these properties next year will not be eligible for a re-up against this moratorium. And insurers, by all accounts, are likely to drop those properties. So now, in order to maintain insurance, all of these these property owners will have to go through the state's uh, FAIR program, which offers supplemental wildfire insurance to complement a difference in condition policy from a private insurer. These policies are generally 
four to five times what someone would have been paying historically for uh, properties, homeowners insurance, where they were just getting the high state allowed mm-hmm. uh, premium rate. Now they've got to get a DIC policy and the state fair policy. And that combination is going to be four or five times what they were used to paying. Is it your sense at all that uh, mortgage lenders are taking this into consideration yet or how much? You know, they're all starting to think about it. And uh, there's there's a few a few things that I think are getting in the way of progress in adoption of this type of thinking. And these are all things that we're very focused on uh, with our research at Delta Terra. I think one is the nascency of uh, climate condition hazard models. So you say, well, in order to decide whether to lend against someone, you want a, a good sense to, to decide whether it's a good bet to lend against a particular property. You want to have a pretty good expectation in mind for where that insurance premium is going, because then you can say, okay, this, this borrower could afford an increase in the insurance premium up to this rational level mm-hmm. if you knew what that was. Or they can't. So perhaps put the the indexed insurance premium into the calculation of the debt to income ratio that would allow that borrower to apply for a loan. Right. That would be one way that an insure that a that a lender could act to manage this risk. However, that rational insurance premium is still somewhat hard to come by. And there's a reason for that, which is that the historically modeling hazard risk relied on actuarial methods that only look into history for an assessment of hazard damages. Now, with climate changing, we know that these risks are in fact not constant over history, but that they're trending. So now we have a need for a whole new type of hazard modeling. And I lumped that into a discipline called climate conditioned hazard modeling. That's a term used by our climate science partners at Rescue. And essentially what this is to say is say, okay, risk probably isn't constant over time if the climate is changing. And there's got to be statistical ways to, to model that outcome. Now, I would just say that the, all that work is nascent, okay. and the the industry is a little bit dogged by the problem right now that you ask five different people for an average annual loss expectation or AAL for a particular property in a given climate scenario, and you're going to get five wildly different answers. I see. Sometimes magnitudes orders different. Um, so that is, you know, and we think that the main issue that's creating challenges in reliability that is, again, slowing adoption of this type of thinking is that these models, the new climate condition models, just like the traditional insurance industry models, only looking at history, <laughs> um, the, new, the new climate condition models are grounded in academic research and aren't validated on any historic data typically. I see. So this makes it very,
very difficult for the industry to coalesce around expectations for rational insurance premiums that they can then decide whether to, you know, underwrite a particular loan or not around. Okay. So that's a that's a big one. There's, you know, there's other issues. I would say mostly related to uh, systemic uh, incentives structures within markets and a desire for research that's going to change lending behavior to have supportive empirical evidence. And I just to summarize this, Hmm. you know, historically, when there's been natural disasters, it hasn't resulted in a lot of losses on mortgage portfolios. Right. And so people don't want to change their underwriting based on an idea about something for which there's no empirical evidence to I support see. it. I see. And I would just say that the reason historically, and this, there's a lot of work behind this that we've done, that markets have not repriced historically is because after a disaster event, a couple of things happen. A lot of government aid comes into the region, again, based on this historically unlimited willingness of the government to absorb cap losses. Um, That's one. And even more importantly, following a disaster, you've always been able to still get an agency mortgage without any regard for this this historic experience you've had. You've, you've been able to get an NFIP insurance policy at the same low rate, right? In, unless it's your fifth flooding event. Your fifth flooding event is the time where your property becomes a severe repetitive loss property okay. and is subject to much higher NFIP pr- pricing. Now, of course, no one ever makes that fifth claim. <laughs> I see. I see. Yeah. Uh, so you you would rather pay for the damages and be able to maintain this low um, insurance premium going forward, and, right. and that's what happens historically. Okay. So it's really just been, you know, you you want some empirical evidence to support the idea that lending against high climate risk properties will result in high losses, but it just isn't there. And it's really because of the fact that the big risk, again, is in the repricing of a long future of heightened costs. And that just hasn't happened before in the past. Uh, Dave, you talk about empirical evidence, but I mean, let's, can we talk about some real life examples, maybe? Um, I'm not, not sure if this is a good one or not, but you know it's in the news right now is this uh, uh, collapse of the Miami condo tower. Um, I'm just wondering from your, you know, it's a tragedy, but from a purely pragmatic point of view, what ran through your mind when you saw that? Yeah, um, definitely a tragedy. It's just, it's unbearable to even think about. I just feel awful for, for all the families who are still missing uh, loved ones. Um, as they resume the the recovery uh, procedures. I mean, I thought Uh, about it because it's in a a climate-sensitive area, right? So I just thought maybe there would be some connection here we could talk about. I don't know. Yeah, and we're gonna we're gonna see more on that. You know, I I have not seen anyone come out with a definitive, here's the link between that tragedy and climate change, but some of the things that we're looking at have an obvious connection 
to structural integrity of property. And I think we will see those conclusions come out. You know, one of the things I thought about was like, if you have a filter system on your home yeah, and you're putting salt into the system to soften your water, like a water softener, Okay. They always have you put the drain for that for that filtering system at least ten feet from your house. So you have to run a long hose out, um, and that's because you don't want the salt coming into contact with your concrete. And there's just horror stories of people putting in these filtering systems and having to redo their foundations uh, because of all the corrosive impact of the salt draining right up against their concrete basements. So I, you know, I've read about that particular property at Surfside, you know, regular salt water flooding into the garage and into the first floor. And it, it does, I mean, it, it makes you wonder, yeah, that probably reduces the structural integrity. I think we're going to see, uh, sadly, an assessment that suggests that this was largely a result of accelerated uh, structural integrity mm-hmm. decline because of flooding I see. of salt water. And I think, you know, it's just from a, to, to tie it out again, from a pragmatic perspective, what does that mean in terms of costs? Because, you know, that is going to create a, a need for a lot of spending uh, so that that does not happen again, right? Mm. So how many properties are now going to have to do five to $50 million renovation projects? Right. What is this um, going to do to the Miami condo market? It, it, exactly. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, and who's going to pay for that? Well, it's whoever owns the property. So if you're buying that property now, um, you know, a property that has any of the, the types of features um, that that resulted in the Surfside tragedy, you're going to pay a lot less for that property because you know you're mm-hmm. going to have to spend a lot of money to make sure that doesn't happen. Right. And there we have uh, some potential repricing, so to speak. Yeah, exactly. So we always, we try to make our work intuitive, really just by speaking to the impact on insurance costs, insurance premiums. But you know what? It's, it's, it's actually a combination of local taxes for adaptation projects, mm-hmm. you know, enhancing structural integrity, resilience spending. Um, there's these, these costs come through to impact future property P&L considerations mm-hmm. in a number of ways. Dave, we've laid out what some of the issues are. I just like to turn, just because uh, we're running out of time here, uh, to the practical use of your research and data. Uh, yeah. So if if I'm a mortgage investor, uh, if I'm a hedge fund or, or, or mutual fund or whatever, how am I using your data? Can you provide sort of specific examples of how some fund uses the data? Yeah, well, like I said, there's, there's a couple things that are out there that we think are inhibiting the use of new powerful climate predictive work in capital markets risk management particularly in real estate market i said i I spoke about one right that that there's a, a lack of reliable climate condition hazard forecasts now that's just the starting point though for what you need to actually understand the implications of these future cost considerations 
on a particular asset or on a particular security that mm-hmm. has risk to that asset value. So like we said, it's not so much an insurance market problem because insurers are a, a mechanism for risk transfer. They're not the actual risk takers. Those are property mm-hmm. investors, right? So how do you then translate these future costs of sub- assumptions into the impact of risk that a particular value, particular property might decline in value, right? That's really where Delta Terra comes in. And we're trying to get all the way to the end of the workflow pipeline and saying, well, what would someone actually need to use to incorporate this information in their day-to-day workflow? Mm-hmm. Okay, and so that's that's really what Delta Terra is all about. We've just released our first research subscription offering. It's called Klima CRT. Klima uh, is specifically the name of our uh, framework and platform for translating these new scientific hazard projections okay, into and that, okay. And that's K L I M A Klima. By the way, yes, right? that's correct. Okay. Yes. And um, that translates these scientific hazard projections into implications on specific investment assets. We have done a very high level assessment of this risk across all of the different capital markets that support the real estate industry. You know, when you think about it, there's single family property markets, there's commercial property markets. They all have different sensitivities to these changing conditions, different levels of mispricing. And then each of those real estate markets is also carved up into different things. So you've got you know, homeowners own properties, there's risk there. You've got lenders against properties, there's risk there. And then you've got loans that get bundled up into mortgage-backed securities, and there's risk there. We've really looked across all of the different real estate capital markets and have found that the most exposed of the capital markets is in some ways a niche area of the capital markets, although it, it supports now about $1.5 trillion in U.S. mortgages, but it's called the credit risk transfer market. So you know about that and yep. probably many of your listeners sure. do. Um, but ultimately, single family market is more overvalued because of all of the government subsidies and support relative to these increased cost assumptions. So we think that the single family market is the most acutely exposed relative to uh, commercial mm-hmm. uh, currently. Um, Also, loans are more exposed in some regards relative to their return potential than equity because these problems are likely to be acute in specific areas. And like I said earlier in the conversation, a small number of big losses, big value declines is actually worse for a lender than like a large number of small value declines because of the protections in place vis-a-vis the the 20% down that the borrower put in. And the last issue with with CRT specifically is that because credit risk transfer bonds absorb losses at the bottom of the capital structure, so they actually take the first losses that are generated by this 
big diversified basket of loans across the United States. Because of that complexion, they are exposed, and because this risk is uncertain as to where it's going to materialize first, these bonds actually are exposed to the worst outcomes wherever they occur. <laughs> so we estimate that roughly um, 20% of properties out there um, are, are have one of these exposures to either wildfire or flood in a, in a major mm-hmm. mispriced way. And so the whole entire CRT capital structure in some cases is only three or 4%. Um, at the bottom of the capital structure. So you even have investment grade bonds where if all of those properties repriced and all of them suffered losses, could end up taking principal losses. So we think that the CRT market is the most exposed so that the, the need for risk management is the most acute. It's also where you need a lot of different walkthroughs from cash flow risk, to value at risk, Mm -hmm. to implications uh, within the capital structure to get to a useful workflow analytic or an analytic that, um, for instance, the TCFD, the Task Force on Climate Disclosure, would suggest is decision useful. So specifically, any CRT investor and the types of clients we're speaking to are pretty much any institutional investor that might invest in CRT. So you're talking about money managers, insurance companies on the asset side, pension funds, sovereign wealth funds, and the like. So all of these folks have might might be looking to purchase, say, into an allocation of 2019 B1s uh, to spend into a, a targeted allocation because they got an inflow, right? Yeah, for instance. Um, and, and you might have a BWIC, a bid, warrant, and competition list come out, and it's got four 2019 B1s on it. The Klima product, what it can be used to do is to say, well, here is the coverage ratio, the loss coverage ratio of that bond, given the the expectation for losses as a result of a climate repricing in a base and a bear scenario. And you can look at that coverage ratio relative to the spreads being talked on those bonds in the market. And mm-hmm. you say, oh, well, I could, I can try and buy this at a 300 DM, but look, this one is trading at a 350 DM and the Klima coverage ratio is, you know, 1.5 versus 1.2 for the other. And that's that's an obvious return mm-hmm. per risk a benefit. And that tends to be a, a, a pretty standard way that someone might look at making some sort of allocation in CRT QCIPs is this relationship between coverage against a certain risk Mm -hmm. and the spread being offered on the bond. I wonder how well that works in today's market with, I mean, it's just acid inflation all over the place, right? (laughs) Right? I mean, it's, uh, I mean, I I find that there are, 
well, investors tell me that other investors are always sort of uh, tweaking their assumptions in order to rationalize paying a higher price for something. Yeah, you know, I think that's really the case. And I, I would say that is uh, a lot of the reason that, uh, that, that this gets perpetuated um, is it's actually when you're a CRT investor, typically your job is to deploy it capital into that asset class. And so you're going to be biased to want to buy things and, and it can be uh, detrimental to your competition as a bond buyer. If you start introducing analytics that discourage you from buying certain bonds, it might make uh -huh. you less competitive. My observation that incentives aren't aligned as well as they would need to be to create these efficient market disciplines. This is something that the FHFA asked about in their RFI as well. People often look at my observation about incentives and they're expecting me to point fingers. Uh -huh. um, and honestly, I don't think that's what it's about. I don't actually see any nefarious agents here. Just a lot of well-meaning professionals you know, doing the jobs they believe they're supposed to do in, an, in this imperfect system. So is it true that a dedicated CRT investor might be reluctant to spend a lot on research they don't even want to believe in and may ultimately get in the way of their market competitiveness when buying bonds? Mm -hmm. I, th I think that's a real thing, you know, and I think it would be pretty naive to think otherwise. However, most of these same professionals really do care about their fiduciary responsibilities to clients. Um, and they aren't out there fighting tooth and nail to resist risk management improvements. You know, this is mm -hmm. clearly evidence in the positive reception we've been getting on our new claim and CRT product, because this provides the exact climate impact estimates at the QCIP deal and loan level for CRT bonds in the way that they need it to make buy and sell workflow decisions. Mm -hmm. And, you know, at a, a subscription fee that represents a fraction, a small fraction, less than 5% of what a typical annual management fee might look like in the asset class. So when analytics providers are complaining that investors don't buy their data because they don't care about climate, they're really missing the point, we think. Mm -hmm. um, we think investors aren't paying, aren't saying no to factoring climate change risk into their investment decisions. They're saying no to multi-year, multi-million dollar internal R&D projects that turn scores and unproven point-in-time estimates into analytics that are trusted and decision-useful. Gotcha. Uh, so we're hoping to close that gap for the markets. Dave, one more question, and then we've uh, got to go, unfortunately. I'm uh, just wondering what your thoughts are on government policy. Uh, we've just had a, a change at the top of the FHFA, um, you know, market watchers generally say that uh, this person uh, Sandra Thompson will be, you know, more uh, akin to carrying out uh, President Biden's agenda. That's just uh, sort of stating the obvious, but I'm just wondering what you thought uh, in terms of mortgage policy. What's interesting is the Bidens is is gonna is gonna have two almost competitive issues with regard to the FHFA. Okay. Um, especially around climate change, because, and this almost speaks to just the overall competing priorities of the agencies. 
So really the idea is to foster liquidity and allow for mortgage accommodation to anyone who's shown, you know, a reasonable ability to, to pay their bills. That's really the goal mm-hmm. of the agencies. Um, and the FHFA is supposed to support that. However, it's a huge taxpayer liability and the FHFA is also responsible for dealing with that issue. I think what's new and historically what this has resulted in is the FHFA supporting generally things that broaden credit extension uh-huh. and relying on things like CRT to deal with the credit risk. So they're like, okay, agencies, you do what you're supposed to do and then come up with a way of letting the markets uh, manage the taxpayer liability or share in the management responsibility of that. Right. And that's really, you know, so now there's a third issue. And and historically, what, what that's ultimately resulted in is a lot of easy lending. Because uh-huh. <laughs> you know? um, ultimately, they do want to fulfill their primary obligation. And if they can do it in a way that feels risk managed, they're going to. Uh, so when it comes to something like climate, right, again, the tendency is to say, well, if you pulled credit from the risky properties that that could cause further equity problems that could you know create challenging challenges for homeowners in certain markets like we don't want to do that all right i think what's changing and i think that this is probably going to overcome in the way that whoever put biden puts in place and and just with regard to the biden administration's recommendations there's really this new idea that we have to do something about the climate crisis. And I think there's growing acceptance, and and this is somewhat evidenced by the FHFA RFI that came out in January itself, Uh right? That wasn't even a Biden administration installed group. And and yet they're, they're very forward thinking about climate risks and Really, it's coming from a desire to deal with the looming climate crisis. And more and more people are coming around to the idea that offering cheap insurance and cheap mortgages to at-risk properties is probably a part of that. Uh-huh. <laughs> it's part of the climate crisis. Um, and, and that needs to be dealt with almost as a priority over these other competing mandates at the agencies. So I think that that is going to win out. And I'll just tell you the, the uh-huh. thing that makes me feel like this is evidence-based in, in, in some, to some degree uh, was really uh, the, the risk rating 2.0 dynamic. Okay. Um, so risk rating 2.0 is always gets super challenged. Like any, any sort of revision at the NFIP always gets challenged by politicians, right? Because for obvious reasons, it's, if if they hike if insurance rates get hiked in someone's specific uh-huh. region, they think they're less likely to get votes in the future, uh-huh. which is probably okay. true. <laughs> right? uh-huh. Sure. Um, and so, but you, what you saw with risk rating 2.0 this year, and, and risk rate rating 2.0 got punted from last year, which was obviously going to happen because it was right before a huge national election. Uh-huh. So it was originally supposed to roll out October first, twenty twenty. They punted to October 1st, 2021, when FEMA really started talking about releasing their methodology papers and impact assessments 
to risk rating 2.0 coming out in October this year, you had the usual pushback from politicians. Mm-hmm. And one of the most vocal actually came from Chuck Schumer, who, who was pushing back because, you know, he's concerned. A lot of his constituents are, long, are on Long Island and they mm-hmm. have higher value properties that are at risk. And he was concerned about moving ahead with this. And there was such a huge backlash to his concern, like right down to like a front page New York Times article. <laughs> I looked that up. The, I missed that. Yeah, I'm also, I'll send it to you. Um, there was, um, maybe it wasn't front page. <laughs> maybe it just been front page in my feed or whatever. Yeah. But anyways, there was a huge pushback and primarily from the left against his opposition, the risk rating 2.0, because people know that it's time to deal Mm -hmm. with the climate crisis and that allowing market forces, not not even like encouraging them, but allowing market forces to help manage this risk is key. And to do that, you, you have to let go of inefficient government subsidies that are contributing to the climate crisis. And we'll move forward, hopefully, with some of the recommendations that we posed in RFI. Essentially, the, the idea is to do things gradually. You don't want to pull credit from an area indiscriminately damage everyone in that area. Uh-huh. So some sort of adoption, and this will be helped um, with increasing acceptance and increasing standardization of climate risk analytics. Again, we hope hope to be helpful in the progression of the reliability of those types of tools. And we do think that eventually they will adopt smart things that allow for a gradual of these costs into mortgage lending. So either through like LLPAs that deal with that assess a, a climate adjusted DTI or mm-hmm. original loan to value. We think that that's probably the most likely way for folks to move forward. Also, really a, a much deeper look at the current uh, mandatory flood obligation mm-hmm. uh, for agency borrowers. Uh, we think that's really important as well. But I think they, they will probably move forward with that initially because it, it should be easy. And then they'll over, the, over, over time, we'll get more comfortable with this idea of some sort of insurance indexed debt to income ratio mm-hmm. or net present value impacted loan to value ratio. Okay. So that's, that's, that's interesting then. I mean, instead of just talking about these things, I mean, it's your sense and hope that, uh, you know, something will actually start to move on these issues. So that'll be interesting to watch uh, going yeah. forward. Okay. Um, Dave, uh, we're out of time and I would just want to thank you so much for, uh, taking so much time with us. And, um, sure. um, I mean, I'm guessing that, uh, we'll have a lot to catch up on, on the future, right? Since, uh, you know, sort of, you know, uh, investors are just really adopting this, uh, this Klima, uh, model that you're, that you're offering, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. We're starting with, uh, the CRT again, we've kind of got the, uh, quote unquote, six Sigma version of that ready to go, but we're having lots of discussions with originators, lenders, commercial real estate investors, and we're going to continue to go deep with this stuff on, with clients and look forward to more discussions in the future and grateful for your focus okay. on the issue and for talking to us. Oh, okay. 
Well, thanks again. Um, that's it for ABS in Mind. Thanks, everybody. Thanks for listening to ABS in Mind. If you're hungry for the skinny on asset-backed bonds, residential and commercial mortgage debt, consider DebtWire.com or just tune in here next time. Also look to us on social media.